do kids understand why news images are so violent or why really compelling, gruesome images go viral and, and others don't? Uh, do kids understand why sitcoms are so snarky and they use stereotypes so much? Do kids understand why the funny quips in the, the big franchise films are, are there and rather than really thoughtful dialogue? I think that there's a real opportunity for us to start talking about the media in an, in an objective way with these kids, not to, not to bash it, but to help them understand this world that they're living in, constructed by the media, that, that define everybody in the world for them and define themselves for them. Welcome back, everybody, to another edition of the Start Ed Up podcast, a member of the Education Podcast Network. Today, we have on Julie Smith, author of Master the Media, How Teaching Media Literacy Can Save Our Plugged-In World. We're going to get into this because now it is quite the topic between fake news and media biases. Uh, it has never been more talked about and more important than ever. And Julie's been on this for quite some time, so I'm excited to have her on the show because she has been very objective and um, just kind of a, I think, a shining light into the education world on preparing our children, uh, the images and the media messages they receive. So if you're a parent, I'm telling you, you got to listen to this one. Please share it. If you're a student, also share it. Um, but uh, I, I think that there's a lot to be gained from this. So dig in, grab some notes, and enjoy the insights from our guest, Julie Smith. All right. Every now and then you get a guest who you're thinking, I need to watch what I say because this is way too comfortable. And I've been, for the full record, I've been friends now with Julie Smith for, I don't know, five-ish years, three, I don't know, whatever. But no matter whatever. what, but no matter what, Julie Smith is one of those, I hate to even say experts because we're always learning, aren't we? But Julie Smith is one of those persons that has been talking about media literacy from the mountaintops from, for a while now. And now all of a sudden she's had her day. Everybody's wanting to talk about media literacy and fake news. So without further ado, Julie Smith, how you doing? I'm good, Don. Thanks so much. You know, it's, it's like I started throwing a party 10 years ago and everybody else is starting to show up finally. Yeah. yeah, yeah all of a sudden people are like, hey, Julie, there's this thing, you know, fake news is real. <laughs> really? You know, there's this media bias out there. Huh? Really? Tell me more. Yeah, it's been it's been great fun. I, I think it's safe to say that I'm the only academic at my university that's happy that, that President Trump is in the White House because it's great job security for those of us who are going around talking about how to figure out what's real and what's not. Yeah, well, and to be fair, this um, precedes President Trump, and we'll get into some of these things. It does. Um, but uh, one of the things I wanted to, to also unpack was that, that a lot of the news that we're promoting also affects mental health. Yeah, in fact, there's even this neat, well, oh my gosh, I'm using the word neat, and I'm using it as, as a substitute for fascinating. There's a fascinating term called mean world syndrome, Don, which means that there's research that says people who consume a lot of news tend to think that the world is a much more dangerous or ugly place than it actually is. And, you know, violent crime is way down since the 90s, but coverage of that crime is way up. And so I can see how this would happen. When, when we consume a lot of news, we tend to think, you know, the world's a terrible place, and, and it's not really. And there are a lot of factors that, that lead to that. But I think awareness is a big step. Yeah, that is true. And, and everybody, well, heck, I fall into this pit. And, and this is going to come across awful. 
I still believe in a lot of some, like I still believe in some social media use in the sense that I want to promote the positive. Okay. If you check my Twitter feed, it's heavily of what my students have done or some good in the world. Right. That being said, I stopped reading most people's posts because I got bothered. It's I got, I got put off. Right. And, and so that's what I'm afraid of. Like if we're all just posting and not listening and I'm guilty, if we're all just posting and not listening, is it really dialogue? Um, because I see a lot of Republicans are so stupid because they blah, blah, blah. And the libtards are so dumb because they blah, blah, blah. And you're like, oh my gosh. And, and of course, neither side is convincing the either side. They're just no. yelling. And, the, and, and, and so like we're, we've become almost this echo chamber of hearing what we want to hear and posting what we want to post and not necessarily having a dialogue. Did you ever hear that quote? Someone said that many people listen not to understand, but to respond. And I think that's kind of where we are now, especially in the social media world, that we're much more interested in how we're going to respond to what we're hearing rather than trying and to actually And how clever. Yes. Yeah. Oh, so my, a- my snappy comeback is going to be much more clever than yours. But, but to be fair, Julie, we live in such a soundbite world. We're rewarded for that. Well, your and, snappy 15-second comeback is everything. And look at the sitcoms we consume also. I mean, I know those of us who still actually watch situation comedies that are delivered on a television set, right, even though our students don't consume television content that way anymore, that's how people communicate in those programs. They're very snarky, um, very pithy clever it's wisdom is not valued on television in many cases it's the sassy comeback and so this is what we grow up hearing and validating so of course this is how we're going to communicate when we have just as much access to the media as um, as any anybody else does so there's a lot it's kind of like this perfect storm happening don that's really interesting because now you know the the barriers to producing media no longer exist we can produce as much stuff online as the New York Times or the Washington Post, right? And we can make it, we have the tools where we can make it look authentic and look real. And at the same time, the the trust in the mainstream news media is at its lowest point ever. So there's this vacuum of people wanting information. And when they see a message that looks real and they like what the message says, research says they're less likely to check it for authenticity, which makes sense, right? We we share what we want to believe. We are, we're more interested in what we believe than what is actually true. And when there is so much information out there, boy, it's hard to sift through to figure out what's real, meaningful, valid, and true. It's hard. Yeah, it's it is. Well, and, and especially when it is appealing to your side. Like, exactly. I, I remember, and um, I know that you know this, but for people that don't know me that well, I used to teach um, media uh, before this wacky innovation class. And one of the things we spent time on was, was bias. And, um, you know, we, we were showing on both sides, right? So, you know, the, the, the famous, uh, what was the, the uh, female politician that they, she was on the cover of Newsweek and her eyes were wide open and they made her look completely like a maniac. Oh, Condoleezza Rice. No, 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 no. Uh, uh, Michelle Bachman. Uh, oh, yes, Michelle Bachman. Famous. Rice was the front page of the New York Times a few years ago. Okay, got it. And like, like, why would they choose this photo? Or there were like, if you Google Obama halo, there were several pictures of him. One point five million. Right. Yeah. Like yeah. of all these, they would they would always take this picture right with the little um, 
presidential seal or a lot of times a, a shining light and it, and it made them look, you know, heavenly. And so and you know they, they started taking a look like, why did they do that? And, and the, the funny part about it is, is like, they didn't notice it until they noticed it. And then one day I showed them a thing from the onion and <laughs> no one, and I mean, no one does it better except no. it, like for those. But the thing is like, after a while, there were people posting things from the onion and going like, see, told you. This is, you know, the, people thought that the onion was real. They didn't understand that it was very tongue-in-cheek. Yeah. Yeah. So, but also, remember, a lot of our students grew up in their news, and I'm using air quotes, getting their news from Jon Stewart. So, or, or the Weekend Update on Saturday Night Live, right? So there's, there's this yeah. satirical tradition, and that brings another interesting point, really. Is it possible for us to receive information without also being entertained at the same time? Right. So when we're presented information in an entertaining way, like Saturday Night Live or Jon Stewart or The Onion, uh, are we more likely to believe it? Um, there's there's so many. That's what I love about teaching media classes is that there's, there's so many different ways you can talk about it. And it changes every day. That's what's so exciting about it. You know, the field changes every day. It's not like I'm a math teacher, which is. You know, yeah. That's, well, that's such that's a feature and a bug, actually, because I'm constantly updating what we're doing in class, but it keeps it exciting and relevant for the students, which is so important. And extremely difficult for, well, I shouldn't say it doesn't have to be difficult for the, the teacher that wants to stay on top of it. You know, how relevant are your sources? Of course, the funny thing is, is that this gets right back to what we said with biases. Right. I mean, th there are some sources like when it's convenient for the other side, they acknowledge it like a Fox News is so biased towards they are, but please check out MSNBC. Please check exactly. out CNN. I mean, and both sides. And, and, we, and this is why there's so much distrust. So now when we have our students like, hey, you know, look it up. Well, what is a valuable source? And, and, and even, on, even on some of the treatment now of people that have differing thought. I, I personally um, really like Dave Rubin. Um, and, and then, you know, Dave Rubin is a guy that's like, look, I've been liberal all my life. And, but I also believe in free speech and limited government. Well, now all of a sudden there's this new term. I think it was the Atlantic that came out with the intellectual dark web. <laughs> that there were these angry males that, you know, are, are spreading hate. And I'm like, I have, and they, they identified Joe Rogan. Okay, maybe that's a little, that's, that's on the fringe. But, you know, th this, this guy named, um, you know, this Dave guy. And that possibly he's a part of the intellectual dark web. I'm like, I've never heard him say a hateful thing ever. And, 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 and it's kind of been this media war of, um, no, I'm not fake news. No, I'm not fake news. And it's getting quite confusing. And you know what? When people bring up the criticism about the news, because, of course, bias always comes up, right? When people bring that up, I usually respond because, you know me, I tend to be kind of sassy. Where does it say that we are entitled to objective news? Where do, where do we get this idea that news is supposed to be objective? I mean, I know that that's really idealistic because if a story is told by a human, we all have our point of view, right? Uh, the professor from NYU, Neil Postman, said that our definition of truth is actually linked to our biases. So it's, it's impossible for us as humans not to be biased. My question is, where do we get this idea that it's supposed to be objective? Al Franken had this great quote. And I don't always agree with Al Franken, but I loved this quote. He said uh, that the media do not have a liberal or a conservative bias. They have a commercial bias. Like we forget that they do yeah. not exist. They don't exist to educate and entertain or inform us. They exist to make money for their stockholders. And I think once 
we help students recognize like the role they play in that economic structure, I think it kind of changes the experience for them. You know, do our students realize that if they're using um, a, a network or a, an app or a website for free, do they understand that they are not the customer, they are the product, they're the product being sold? And I'm not sure a lot of people understand that. And once you do, I think it changes the, changes the experience for them in, in, a, in a different way. It makes, it, um, makes them more aware of the economic structure of it all. Yeah, it, it really does. It it's really a machine. Does. It's a machine. And essentially, they're giving us what we want rather than what we need. And that's a business decision. And if I Well, ran, and it's also I a mirror. I really think that it's a mirror to our face, too, because there's been several people like, why can't somebody start a, a news organization that just features the good in the world? And we're like, they tried. It was called Oprah Winfrey Network. And, 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 and like, it just didn't sell. Like, no. I, I hate to see it, but that old, if it bleeds, it leads kind of thing. People are, are quoting Don Henley songs. You know, people want their dirty laundry. And, we and, love the dirty laundry. We love the dirty laundry. Kick and them I, I think up. That's, Kick them when they're I, down. I think it's that um, we just don't like to admit that. You know, that, it, that it's such a part of human nature. We do like the dirty laundry. And yeah. we love the drama and we love the pageantry and we love, um, especially love it when celebrities fall from grace. Sure. Yeah. Well, and, and I think that that's also been a problem is that now both sides feel like they have to, but he, but he did this first. Right. I, I mean, uh, like I, I'm, I'm a whopping, well, actually I'm 46 now. So I don't really remember the media bashing President Reagan. Um, but I did notice a tide turn with Bush one. And then, um, I mean, heck, Rush Limbaugh, nobody benefited more off the Clinton legacy because it was his job to defame him. So right. all of a sudden, you know, so w when, a, when a Republican got back in office, the media was like, well, of course, we're going to attack this guy. And then well, when and Obama took office, they're like, well, of course, we're going to attack this guy. They both feel like they have to be so mean. And, and, I, and it's, it's, it's maddening. There's context, too, as far as, uh, now I'm older than you, so I remember when Reagan was in office. Our options for news then were ABC, NBC, CBS, and the morning newspaper. Okay? So, also, uh, Ronald Reagan had a guy named Michael Deaver running his communication office, which would put together these beautiful television packages and just give them to the networks. And the networks... Uh, would run them just because it was less work that they had to do, right? So they, Reagan, because there were fewer news outlets, had an easier time controlling his message. Then once we ended up with cable systems and the Telecommunications Act of 1996 um, did not renew something called the Fairness Doctrine, which meant that news outlets had to provide equal sides to every issue. Once that went away, then cable networks could just go crazy and cover really any side they wanted so they're going to you know obviously going to choose to um, cater to whatever their audience is like msnbc you know leaning left and fox leaning to the right so now i think that there are so many options for news it's it's more of a challenge for a politician to get their message across just because there's so many the audience is fragmented in a way that we weren't when Reagan was president. So it, it all, it, it, it's so interesting to see how it's all kind of evolved over the last few decades. The, the technology has been amazing. Yeah, it has. Man, and you I know, could... with, with the sources too, oh, go ahead, Don, I'm sorry. No, I was going to say I could geek out on this forever, but I, I do, <laughs> I want to, I, because I, I do, I, I'm fascinated by it um, because I think you know, I'm fairly transparent with my political leanings. I'm very, you know, 
I'm a libertarian, so I see both sides. I really do. Um, but going back to our original mission here, you're, you're now getting a lot of parents reaching out to you about some of these things and, 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 and the ramifications it has on our students. What are some of the things that you hear them bring up that are especially concerning? You know what amazes me? Because I, I, I speak to a lot of parent groups in church basements about social media because it turns out parents are like really hungry for this information and they don't know where to get it and they don't know what they don't know, right? So some of the questions I get from the parents are astounding to me. Um, usually I'll have someone say, how can I keep my daughter from texting during dinner? And I, that question just dumbfounds me. And, and I typically say, again, because I'm relatively sassy, who's in charge at your house? Who's in charge? Like if you don't want your kids texting at dinner, put put your foot down. But I think a lot of parents feel a lot of pressure that, you know, the, the phones are the social lives for the kids now. And so they don't want their kid to be um, left out for lack of a better term. And I'm, and I'm generalizing. A lot of parents are no longer as concerned about stalking and um, sexting as much as they're concerned about the anxiety and the depression that all of this um, yes. constant connectivity yep. is causing the kids. And, you know, you, you see news stories all the time about anxiety levels increasing, depression levels increasing. There's a physician I spoke to at Children's Hospital in St. Louis who said that last year she would see maybe one or two anxiety cases a week. Now she's seeing four or five a day. And she specializes in adolescent medicine. And she doesn't feel like she's prepared for this kind of treatment. And, and she and I are going to work together to try to work on some sort of uh, social media guide for really young parents to help because really what it boils down to Don like would you give a kid a Ferrari without driver's ed of course not but we're giving kids this tool this amazing fantastic tool without talking to them about all the ways this particular tool can make them feel and when you're a teenager you know everything is so dramatic anyway and so difficult anyway to have images of perfection constantly in your face or uh, photographs of your friends having fun without you or um, having comments enabled on all of your social media accounts where strangers can say things to you without repercussion. You know, there's a, there are two new apps out which kind of give me the creeps. Um, one is called To Be Honest, TBH. Of course, it was bought by Facebook, so that means that they do see some um, good financial future in it. And another one is called Saraha. And the taglines for these apps, Don, it says... Become the best you you can be by receiving anonymous criticism and feedback from your friends. Way to package stalking. <laughs> and way to package a one-way ticket to depression. Yep. What, you want to put that tool in the hand of a seventh grade girl? They're evil, right? It's really, really important that we talk to the kids, not just about, um, you know, the standard discussions, pornography, privacy, personal identifiable information, et cetera, et cetera. But really, how is this app going to make you feel? What are your coping skills for when you feel the term that we use in my field is called compare and despair? The idea that we are inundated with these images of um, really wealthy people. You know, have you ever looked at those accounts on Instagram, like rich kids of Istanbul, rich kids of London, rich kids of Dubai? They have millions of followers. And there's, I think, a lot of recent research says that this just leads to this case, this feeling of helplessness that we're, that we will never measure up. And 
that's that's a heavy load to carry when you're 14 years old. It is. It it is. And and I I, uh, always like stop and think as much as I promote, going back to the top of the podcast, as much as I want to promote my students on, well, heck, I I, I darn or make it a requirement in my class. I want you to be transparent with your work. But at the same time, don't let me catch you doing double middle fingers, duck face selfie, acting stupid. I like treat your treat yourself like a professional online, and people will treat you like a professional. However, has, however, I will say, like in some ways, I'm like, hey, get on social media a little more. Ooh, careful. Well, no, well, but here's here's one way to look at it, Don. And this is something that I talk to the parents. I think it freaks them out sometimes. You know, the kids' stories are going to be told online one way or the other. So 10 years ago, people in my field would have been saying, I don't post, don't post online, don't post selfies, don't, you know, um, now there's been kind of a pivot, a, a paradigm shift where now I tell the student, when I talk to middle schoolers and high schoolers, I say, your story is going to be told online. You need to be the author of that story. You need to be on LinkedIn. You need to have a special Instagram account just for your hobby. And you follow famous people who are successful in your hobby and you follow who they follow. You need to be following the hashtags in your field. You find the, the people who have the absolute dream job that you want and you follow them on Twitter and you follow who they follow. We want essentially for when, when a student Googles themselves for that whole first page to be nothing but fantastic stuff that they have put up themselves. Because now what's interesting is that if you Google somebody now and nothing comes up, that's the red flag now, Right. So we want to coach them and you're doing a great job, Don. You were coaching them about how to be professional online because that's what they need. We need to stop saying don't post and we need to, to pivot and be um, less preachy and more coachy and say, yes, you need to be posting. Here's how you do it. You know, research says the background of your profile picture should be clean and, and plain. Um, you should have someone else take the photo. You should make sure you have a, a fantastic LinkedIn profile by the time you're a senior in high school. If you're an athlete, you should have a, a YouTube channel that's essentially your highlight reel, you know, so that they're promoting their skills and talents and interests. And, and that's uncomfortable for a lot of people. But that their story is going to be told online one way or the other. We teach them how to be the authors of that story. No, you're, you're correct. And I mean, I'm, I'm glad um, you see it that way. I mean, I, I do. We, we take time to train our students in the innovation class for social media. There's no way around it. I just, you know, get that slight, you know, with all the things I see um, is that I guess to your point, I'm training them how to use it responsibly. I just, you always fear that, you know, you you know you can teach something to do it something safely, but you still give them a uh, an interesting weapon at times and and a tool at others. So uh, you know. Well, and and you know what, a car is the same way. Absolutely. No, I, I've said I've said that a, again and again. Yeah. You know, uh, yeah, and, and I want this tool to be used for for positive, not negative. Um, but uh, yeah, no. I, uh, the the other part of that you had that I think you you hit the head on is that. Um, you know, who, who's in charge of your house? You know, um, daggone it. If you think your child is spending too much time on the phone, set parameters, right. you know, you, you can earn this much time. Well, my friends and I hate, boy, I'm now sounding like Chuck and Sue Wetrick. Like if your friends will only be friends with you certain hours a day, then they weren't meant to be friends at all. But you know, oh, all my friends text me at 10 o'clock at night. Well, you should be asleep. Oh my gosh! Yes, you I'm know. in my third stage of REM by then. Right. You know. Oh, that's my alarm clock. I, I. It's funny. I bought one of my child an alarm clock. I'm like, okay, problem solved. 
exactly. What, you know, what's your next excuse? So it, it's, you know, it, it's, it's a scary time. Um, I think that our students still want to do what's popular and they still want to compare, but I, you know, let's, let's give them people, um, to, you know, look up to, I, I, I actually, I'm not sure if I told you my daughter started a podcast for that reason. Yes. Um, Ava, Ava was like, Oh my gosh, why are we taking all of our instructions from celebrities that are clueless? Why aren't we listening to Simon Sinek? Which by the way, that, that, um, that thing that he did with Tom Bilyeu on, on what was then called inside quest, you know, that, you know, that millennial talk that broke the internet. Um, Simon Sinek made the, the funny remark of, you know, you have an addiction problem to your phone and people are like, well, I, I use it as my alarm clock. He's like, buy an alarm clock. It was, it was right. in that moment that I looked at Ava and I'm like, I'm buying you an alarm clock. Um, but, you know, back the, us Wetricks are weird families that we, we, we enjoy listening to, to people like Simon Sinek and everything else. But um, to the vast majority of other kids, I mean, their favorite celebrity is making mean tweets. We, well, we, sure. we, we, we make fun of, you know, we have certain segments called mean tweets and we're like, oh, wasn't that insulting and terrible? Well, I mean, it's not good. It's not well, good. Not- you know, and it's interesting, Don, you know, in, in K-12, there's such a push for the social-emotional learning, right? And yet our students now, the average American consumes between 11 and 11 and a half hours a day of electronic mass media. How much of that media, how many of those messages are positive? You know, where we're, we're teaching kids, you know, we're telling them you're supposed to be honest and you're supposed to be responsible and you're supposed to be kind and respectful. How much of that are they witnessing in the 11 hours of media that they consume every day? And that's why I think media literacy is so important because we, if we start to teach children at, at any age why the media shows us what they do, then maybe, just maybe, the impact won't be so severe. Um, I think there's a lot of possibilities there. You know, do, do kids understand why news images are so violent or why really compelling, gruesome images go viral and, and others don't? Uh, do kids understand why sitcoms are so snarky and they use stereotypes so much? Do kids understand why the funny quips in the, the big franchise films are, are there and rather than really thoughtful dialogue? I think that there's a real opportunity for us to start talking about the media in an, in an objective way with these kids, not to, not to bash it, but to help them understand this world that they're living in constructed by the media that, that define everybody in the world for them and define themselves for them. You know, if they understood a little yeah. better how it works, would it change their outlook? You know, and, and I don't know, there's a, there's a lot of interesting research coming out like, um, these professors in Hungary started teaching media literacy skills to these kids related to like something simple like alcohol and tobacco advertising. And after that, the, the consumption rates dropped just because the kids understood how the ads were working. Like it could be something as simple as that. Like if we teach kids what images work on Instagram and which ones don't, would they understand how they're manipulated? You know, like, do kids understand how clickbait headlines are written? Do they understand the formula and, and why you put some words in all capital letters? If they understood, would they be less likely to click on them? You know, just things like, this is what keeps me awake at night, Don, asking, <laughs> asking all these questions. But yeah. there's, there's such a possibility here for us to really make some headway in their emotional health by, by teaching them more about the media than we do. You know, that's the last follow-up question I want. Uh, you know, you, you wrote a book, Master of the Media. Mm-hmm. Um, thoroughly enjoyed it. But what's, what's the, if you could, 
go and, and stuff in another chapter right now to add to the book, what would it be? Oh, it would be all about mental health and social emotional learning and how we interact with the media, especially social media, and how media literacy could help that. I, and that is such a great question, Don. And it's interesting. I'd never thought of that before. But the minute you asked me, I knew that's what the extra chapter would be. Um, yeah, that's what I. That's why I figured you would say because I was like, <laughs> and, and, because no, because like it's just been, just I hate to bring this up because like it's been it's been awful. But I, I've and I'm not saying this to like from feel pity for me, but more for my students. I, I've been um, to more funerals in the last three years than I did my previous 17 years of teaching. Suicides? Yep. And, oh, and no, one of them was, was, uh, had everything to do with, with, um, military and PTSD, but like, you know, and, and I've also never heard of more, um, complaints and, and therapy for anxiety. And, and so, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, it's, it's a real thing. It is a, it's it is a real, real thing. thing. It is a real thing. And I think that we need to think about out of the box ways to solve this problem. Yeah. And a dialogue of like people get themselves worked up over frenzy. And, and if we just honestly took a step back and like, we're really obsessing over what? Right. You know, right. well, so-and-so gets to have this and the kids, of, the rich kids of London get to do this. Okay, that's right. fine. Let, let me show you everybody else in London. Yeah, and, exactly. And, and not to try to like, like, you know, beat people down, but like, that's not normal. It's, it's really not. And, and, you know, quit, like, I, I get it. There's some people that have the rich kids in London, good for them. But you know what? Like, you can be a light on the world. You, you could do things and use this wonderful tool. And by the way, make complete asses of those rich kids of London, you know, <laughs> Oh, hear me. I'm, I'm sitting by the pool in my, you know, next to my Bugatti. That's cool. I'm out serving the public. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's kind of like how I feel watching the Oscars judging their dresses while I'm sitting in my sweatpants on. The <sighs> right. Yeah. This is the reason why I don't watch TV anymore, by the way. I just, yeah. I, I um, had a former student tell me that Instagram was really starting to bother him and he could tell that it was bringing him down. And what he started doing, he made a conscious decision to mute the accounts that were bothering him. Now, that's a, that's a smart political move because then the account doesn't know that you've actually stopped looking at them, right? But he started following inspirational people instead. And he told me that it has completely changed his attitude, not just about life in general, but about his phone in particular. And I think there's a lot to that. You know, it could be something simple as just taking the email app off your phone. So that, yeah. it, so that the things that you have to do, you know, have you heard email described as someone else telling you what your to-do list is? <laughs> if you just keep that on your computer rather than on your phone, how would that make you feel? Would that liberate you a little bit? Yeah. You know? I, had a, I had a former student that traded in his phone for a flip phone. And, um, and he, so he, he muted his Instagram, Instagram accounts. Matter of fact, he just graduated from college and he made his first post in two years. Um, but he, one time I, he, he, you know, talked about trading in his dumb phone for a smartphone. I'm like, um, no, you traded in a smartphone for a flip phone. He's like, no, the smartphone made me dumb. Mm -hmm. He says, I realized, and I, cause I even said like, why did you, why did you trade in for a flip phone? He's like, I realized that I wasn't paying attention to people. 
I quit, oh. I quit having conversations and it made me dumb. And he says, so as soon as I couldn't, basically, if I couldn't go through my text, if I couldn't go through my feed, I mean, he's like, um, then I realized that it made me a better person. So the smartphone was actually really dumb. Isn't that interesting? And you know what? I have a colleague at the university who has started doing workshops for K-12 teachers on how to help students reclaim the lost art of conversation. She's a speech communication professor. And I think it's genius because that's another fear that a lot of parents and teachers have too, is not just the emotional effect of this, but also the, um, have we really indeed lost the ability to have a conversation? And I, I think there's a lot, a lot to think about there. You know? Yeah. Um, no matter, you know, social media can be a wonderful, wonderful thing, but all the important stuff in life still happens face to face. It sure does. And, and, and a lot of the mean keyboard warriors I know are really nice people, just not behind the keyboard. Isn't that I, 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 I know some real trolls and to meet them in person, you're like, wait, you're not, <laughs> you're not bad. You're just overly opinionated and overly confident when you get behind a keyboard. Just Actually, side note, one of the funniest things of it, well, first of all, you know my reverence for South Park. Yes. Their little musical piece of put it down. And it was like, if you're ever elected president, put your phone down. (laughs) (laughs) And put it down. And they're like, just stop tweeting, please. You know what's interesting, though? Um, I read an article, and I can't remember who wrote this, comparing Trump's use of Twitter to Franklin Roosevelt's use of the radio. Because Roosevelt was criticized for Roosevelt was yep. criticized for bypassing regular news outlets and speaking to the people directly. That's, and, wow. Yeah, yeah, really interesting viewpoint, right? Huh. Yeah, yeah, wow. so we could, we could go on and on and on no, about that. Well, <laughs> and on and on. If, 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 by the way, my, my, oh, I need to get either Matt or Trey on the show. I've tried a couple times. It hasn't, uh, someday. You'll get them. Uh, someday, those guys. You'll get them. You'll get well, them. Julie, I sincerely appreciate you being on. Um, always, always look up uh, to what you do, and and I love the like the just how you've been talking about this, and it's kind of been funny. Like people, are like, wait, this thing is serious. This thing is real, and and uh, you doing that, taking that with dignity in class. Um, but I uh, love the work you're doing, and as always, I value your friendship and um, continued success, my friend. Uh, Don, thank you so much for having me. And you know that whenever I think of an 80s music trivia question, you're going to be the first person I reach out to. You know, I'm shocked that we didn't make some sort of obscure, like, you know, Eben Ozen or at least Duran Duran reference, but... um, A-E-I-O-U. Sometimes why. (laughs) You are literally maybe one of only three people I know in America that would know anything about (laughs) Eben Ozen. That's why we were separated at birth, my friend. Yes, indeed. Well, Julie, thank you so On that note, and on, on uh, any person that really isn't a new wave, we shall uh, bid adieu. Thanks so much, Julie. Thanks, Don. Bye. All right, there you go, Julie Smith. I highly, highly, highly recommend picking up her book. Also give her a follow there on Twitter. Other than that, the reason why we can find these great people is that a lot of times we get recommendations on Facebook. So go to facebook.com slash start it up and give us some recommendations on who we should have on the podcast. Other than that, I'm excited about this week's coming up episode. It's a good one. And until then, this is Don Wetrick reminding you again that opportunities are everywhere. We'll see ya.